Welcome to Malicious Mamas, a podcast dedicated to an all-female perspective on lore, legends, and the creatures of the insomnia-driven fears you have at 3 a.m. I am your host, Vicky Mandiola. This week, I'd like to welcome the new listeners here to Mamas. I know a majority of you are from feminist folklore, so I also want to give a shout out to those ladies as well. In honor of this, and to kick off the spookiest month of the year, I've decided to do a classic tale of murder. I've mentioned this before, but I'm originally from New England, and I've known about this story ever since I was a kid, with a help from a little rhyme. I was also in a production once based on her life after the famous murders, but that's a whole different story. Anyway, since her tale is so full of little intricacies, I've broken it down to paint the picture properly and highlighted some of the bits I find particularly interesting. So, without further ado, let's get down to the business. This week's topic is Lizzie Borden. In Fall River, Massachusetts, on July 19, 1860, Lizzie Andrew Borden was born to parents Sarah Morse and Andrew Borden. Andrew's upbringing was relatively modest, and he struggled financially when he was a young man. Eventually, he went on to become a wealthy property developer. In fact, at the time of his death, Andrew was reportedly worth $300,000, which is about $8 million in today's money. Despite rolling in the dough, Mr. Borden was frugal and refused to have plumbing and electricity installed in the family home, even though this was a common practice done by most wealthy people during this era. Lizzie and her older sister, Emma, grew up religious and were very involved in the church. When Lizzie was only three years old, her mother, Sarah, passed away. Three years after this, Andrew married Abby Durfee Gray in 1863. According to accounts, Lizzie and her stepmother were not close. Lizzie even mentioned that she referred to the woman as Mrs. Borden and only thought Abby married her father for his money, which is ironic considering how he didn't spend it. Right before the famous murders at their home, the Borden family got into a fight, which caused Lizzie and Emma to go on an extended vacation to New Bedford. One week before the murders, the sisters returned, only Lizzie decided to book a stay for four days at a local rooming house before returning to the family home. This fighting was most likely the cause of Andrew deciding to give away property to some of Abby's family members. The sisters wanted a piece of land of their own, and a fight ensued. On the night before the murders, the brother of their deceased mother, John Morse, came for a visit to discuss business matters with Andrew, 
which was pretty much just another way to say family real estate deal. This created more tension in the house, and to make matters worse, the family had all been violently ill for days due to some bad mutton left out on the stove used for several meals. I bet Andrew wished he had sprung for some kind of refrigeration at that point. All of this brings us to the actual day itself. On the morning of August 4th, 1892, Abby went to the second floor of the Borden home between 9 and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed of Uncle John. According to a later investigation, it was determined that Abby was facing her killer during the attack. She was first hit on the side of her head, right above her ear, which caused her to fall and ended with contusions to her forehead and nose. Abby was then hit 17 more times to the back of her head until she died. On the flip side, after breakfast, Andrew had a chat with John, who claimed he was going to visit another niece in Fall River. Then Mr. Borden headed out of the house around 9am for his morning walk. When he returned at 10.30 in the morning, he found that his key could not unlock the jammed door and knocked until the Borden maid, Bridget Maggie Sullivan, came to help him inside after struggling with the door herself. Andrew entered and laid on the couch for a nap. Around this time, Lizzie claimed to have told Bridget of a sale at a department store in town and permitted the maid to go. But Sullivan actually just wanted to rest in her room on the third floor instead. At 11.10 a.m., the maid awoke to the sound of Lizzie screaming for her help claiming that someone had killed her father. Upon investigation, it was found that Andrew had been struck 10 or 11 times, all while he was still asleep. From here, we'll move on to the investigation, where things start to get even more bizarre, if you can believe it. First, Lizzie's responses to the police were questionable and contradictory from the start. Upon re-entering the Borden home, Lizzie had claimed to have been in the family barn at the time of her father's murder. She reported to have heard a groan or a cry for help. Two hours after this, however, Ms. Borden changed her story and said that she had heard nothing upon entry of the home. When asked where her stepmother was, Lizzie claimed to have gotten a note from Abby stating that the woman was visiting a sick friend, but that she was probably back at this point. She then asked for someone to check the Borden home for her stepmother, and, of course, Abby's body was found. A search of the house was done, which resulted in the discovery of two hatchets and two axes in the basement. Despite the missing handle from one of these blades, they were not considered the murder weapons and were left in the house. 
Although a search of Lizzie's room was conducted as well, it was not done thoroughly. The police claimed this was the result of Lizzie complaining of being sick, and the same investigators were scolded later for their negligence. After the initial investigation, the sisters were allowed to stay in their home, and their friend, Alice Russell, stayed for support. On the morning of August 6th, just two days after the murders, Alice had an odd encounter with Lizzie. The woman walked into the kitchen to find Lizzie tearing up a dress she claimed to have gotten paint on. Lizzie then told her she planned to burn the dress as it was ruined. So at this point, Lizzie wasn't looking so good. Now it was time for an inquest, which takes Lizzie's strange behavior in a different direction. In order to calm her nerves, Lizzie had been prescribed morphine, so essentially, the girl was even more all over the place. She would refuse to answer questions, even if the response would benefit her case. It was here that she claimed that she removed Andrew's boots upon him returning home from his walk when he decided to take a nap. This was proven to be false, as the picture of his murder showed Mr. Borden still wearing his boots while lying on the couch. Not able to really get her story straight, Lizzie was then put on trial on June 5th, 1893. After talking with Bridget, and once her father was resting on the couch, Lizzie reported that she went to the family's barn for about 30 minutes. A neighbor confirmed the story while adding that he saw Lizzie move from the barn to the house at around 11.03 a.m. One of the points mentioned at the trial was the lack of evidence found in the home or in Lizzie's possession. Alice's whole paint dress story was included, but the defense decided not to push the case as it could not be proven this was the dress Lizzie wore on the day in question. Another interesting moment in the trial was the reveal of the skulls of Andrew and Abby. Upon seeing this new evidence, Lizzie fainted. It took the jury an hour and a half to acquit Borden of the murders. After the trial, Lizzie continued to live in Fall River with her sister under the new name of Lizbeth. Due to the outrageous nature of the case and how Lizzie looked pretty guilty throughout the whole ordeal, the people of the town shunned her from society. Just when you thought the family tension was over, in 1905, Lizzie and Emma got into such a bad fight that Emma moved out. Lizzie never married, and on June 1st, 1927, Borden died alone of pneumonia. 
What I find so fascinating about this story is the fact that Lizzie has continued to be made out as a murderer in history. To be fair, there was some sketchiness about where her stepmother was, or why she needed to burn a dress, but really the police were not able to find anything else to prove it was 100% her. Thinking on the side of her innocence, the woman's parents were just murdered. So, if we consider how off her responses were, or her inability to keep it together, it makes perfect sense. She could have very well been in shock, because if we think of it otherwise, Borden was not only a murderer, but a manipulative psychopath. I mean, she did faint at the trial. To do that on cue would be pretty impressive. So, listeners... We are left to consider what we want to believe versus what the evidence says. So, where do you lie? On that note, let's conclude this episode. If you have any suggestions on mamas you'd like me to cover or a spooky tale to share, please send an email to maliciousmamas at gmail.com. If you're looking for more mamas in your life, Follow Malicious Mamas on both Instagram and Twitter. Also, if you could rate, comment, and subscribe to Malicious Mamas on your favorite podcast app, it would really help to get the show out there, and I would greatly appreciate the feedback. Until next time, keep it real, Mamas. Mamas.